Thank you, praise team. Is that a blessing to you this morning? Yeah. Again, every, every Sunday I, when I come up here, I feel refreshed just from having, spending some time praising the Lord. Don't you? Let's, uh, let's turn back to Joshua. We're, we've been uh, in our journey with Joshua for a while now. And uh, we're in chapter 7 of, uh, of Joshua. So if you could go ahead and turn there. Just to remember where we are, we have come through the first phase of the conquest phase, really the part, part one would be the Jericho phase. We have seen God do an amazing work in Jericho, and then we have the AI phase, which we began a few weeks ago, which did not go as well as they had hoped, right? We, we, we see for the first time in the conquest phase a failure. We see for the first time where things have not uh, gone well. In fact, as we look at this, uh, the big picture, we see a pendulum swing that has taken place. Remember, they, if we go all the way back to the first time they, were, they entered the promised land as spies, we, we can call this the, the, the cowardice moment in Israel's history because they went in, they saw the giants, they saw the enemies of God, they saw high walls, they saw trained armies, and they said, there's no way we can do this. So for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, but 40 years later, they sent spies in once again. And do you remember what they told them? Yeah, the giants are still there, the walls are still there, the the enemies are just as strong, but God can win this for us. Surely the Lord has delivered them into our hands. That's what they said. So this was their moment of courage, right? But as with any pendulum, what can happen? See, if you start on this end over here where there's cowardice, and they were moving in the direction of courage, what do we find by the time they get to AI? We find, the word we used a few weeks ago, conceit. Once again, we find them leaving God out of the equation. No word from the Lord telling them what to do. They did not consult God. They just moved forward. And they didn't bring everybody. In fact, they didn't even bring Joshua. They said, oh, two or 3,000 people could handle AI. Right? Do you remember Remember that? So let's look at uh, chapter 7, verse 2, and see how that turned out for them. So we're Joshua chapter 7, starting verse 2. We'll read verses 2 through 5. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, or uh, excuse me, three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So what was the result when they did that pendulum swing? What was the result of conceit, pride? What was it? A failure. Next thing you know, they're the ones whose hearts have melted like water. It's the very same thing we heard Rahab say about the enemies of God. And now, God's people are fearing. God's people have lost their courage. Once again, they left out God in the equation. So that's why in chapter 7, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about the, how this whole chapter goes. 
First, we found in verse 1, we found an introduction that said that who sinned? The children of Israel and Achan. So we talked a little, bit, a little bit about that last week. So the children of Israel. And so in verses 2 through 5, we find the story that we just read about Israel's sin, what they did by leaving God out of the equation, and the results of that. Starting in verse 16 through 26, we find the, the story of Achan's sin. We're going to find out a little bit more about that next week. And sandwiched in the middle, we have this conversation between Joshua and God. Uh, Joshua talks uh, to God, and, and uh, God talks back to him. If we look at Israel's sin, the story that we just came out of, to know where we, we're, we're at right now, we found that really the sin was the sin of self-reliance. It was a sin of leaving God out of the equation, was it not? In a sense, that parallels the sin of cowardice, because in the sin of cowardice, we leave God out of the equation, and we rely on ourselves, but we think there's no way we can do this. On the other side, with conceit, self-reliance, and we leave God out of the equation, but we think, yeah, I think I can do this. Thanks, God, for leaving, or for leaving me up to this point, but I've got it from here. It's a bad place to be in, right? And so we, we find that that's where, where it's at in, this, in Israel's sin. Now we'll come to uh, uh, Joshua 7, verses 6 through 9, and we're going to see how Joshua responded to this. I have a feeling that if Joshua had sat down and and enjoyed a worship service like we just had, he may not have responded the way that we find him responding in verse 6. And then uh, next week we'll see how God responded to it. But let's go to uh, verses 6 through 9 and look at how Joshua responded. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To destroy us? Uh, or, or to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns us back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do? For your great name. Here we see how Joshua responds. We see Joshua responded in a way where he lost all hope. He didn't come back to the middle. Where did he go back to? He did the pendulum swing to conceit, but he didn't come back to the middle. He, he pendulum swung back to cowardice, didn't he? And we see that pendulum, how hard it is sometimes to stay in the middle, in that, in that middle ground, that, the ground of, of courage. But in these three short verses, we're going to find five temptations that we oftentimes fall into, like Joshua, when things don't go right. Five temptations when things go wrong, and, and we fall into these as well, if, if we're honest. So before we point the finger too, too, too sharply at, at Joshua, we have to understand we fit this as well. But let's look at, the, look at what those five temptations are when things go wrong. The first one is we are tempted to fall into discouragement. Fall into discouragement. Let's read verse 6 one more time. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. I just want you to picture this for a moment. You know, tearing your clothes. We see this multiple times in Scripture. Tearing your clothes. The idea is they would grab around the collar and they would just tear. Tear whatever clothes they had on right there. And they would just rip it. And then he, where did he fall? He fell fat, uh, 
fell fat on his face, I was going to say. That probably has a completely different meaning, right? He fell flat on his face, right, before the ark of the Lord. And it says he was there for how long? Until evening. So from the time that he heard the news of this, he spent the entire day just flat on his face before the Lord. The elders came around as well, and what did they do? They did the same thing. They fell flat on their faces before the Lord. They put dust on their heads. This is a sign of mourning. They would oftentimes do this when someone died. And, and, uh, and so this is, this is the situation that we find them in. And you know what? Someone did die. 36 men died. I'm sure that Joshua knew some of them, right? But out of about 3,000 soldiers, 36, uh, 36 of them died in that battle. And he fell before the Lord. Put dust on his head. These are all signs of discouragement. Now, before we point to that and say that, should, that this is wrong, we have to ask the question, well, what should he have done? What should he have thought? I mean, should he have responded differently? So keep your fingers in chapter 7 for a second. And, uh, but let's go back to the very beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. I want to remind you of something that God had said to Joshua. Let's read the first few verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness... And this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and of the great sea uh, toward, the, toward going down of the sun shall be your territory. Let me just stop there for a moment. In Joshua's mind, do you think he was questioning whether or not God was keeping up with his, his end of the bargain at this point? Have you ever been there? Where you thought, wait a minute, I don't think God's keeping all of his promises here. Is AI inside the boundaries that we just read about? Yes, it is. It's just outside of Jericho. It's not far from... It's a, a, you can walk there from Jericho. This is on the west side of the Jordan River. This is the promised land. They weren't trying to attack a city that God didn't tell them to. And God said, every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have already given to you. In fact, look at verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. How do you think Joshua felt at this moment? Do you think he felt forsaken? Do you think he felt like God had left him? Verse 6. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. There was a condition on that command. Now, if God, or on, on that promise, when God gives us a promise, and it seems like he's not fulfilling it, and there's a condition on that promise, who do you think failed? God or us? Us, right. So it's not rocket science here. This is a simple syllogism that that Joshua could have thought through. He could have thought, wait a minute, God promised me victory. As long as we obey, 
we didn't have victory, therefore we, we must have disobeyed. And so he went to the right place, he went before the Lord, but instead of going to the Lord saying something like David did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. No, no, that's David. David, a man after God's own heart. But Joshua didn't succeed in that. Instead, he comes and says, Lord, we failed. What are you going to do? You can't even help in this situation. Things are going, the enemies are going to hear about you. We're all going to die and your name is going to die with us. That's the response that Joshua had, isn't it? And so Joshua fell into this discouragement. That was the first temptation. There's a second temptation that we oftentimes fall into when things are not going well. And that's to question God's motives. Look at verse 7. We're back in chapter 7 now. So Joshua 7, verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Now we see Joshua is questioning the very motives of God. He's saying, Lord, your motives are not so pure. You didn't bring us to, to protect us. You didn't bring us to bless us. You didn't bring us for any of those things that you promised. You brought us here to die. Now, if God wanted to kill them, do you think there were some earlier moments in Israel's history that he could have done that? Yes. I mean, there were plenty of times that he could have done that. Amen? Uh, in fact, all we have to do is look at the, the history of, of Israel, and, and, uh, and we see this tendency multiple times. In fact, if we uh, go back to when they were crossed the Red Sea, take the few moments before they crossed the Red Sea, they're running from the Egyptian army, they come to the Red Sea, they, they look at the Red Sea, they assume that that's uncrossable, they look back and they say, uh-oh, the Egyptians are coming, they're, they're after us, and we are surrounded. And so did they go to the Lord and say, Lord, how are you going to get us through this? Help us with this. What did they do? Instead, they said in Exodus 14, verses 10 and 11, they said, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So far, so good, right? That's a great place to cry out to. Verse 11, And they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up? Out of Egypt. What are they doing? They're questioning the motives. Saying maybe the, there's a, a, a wrong motive behind this. Uh, or when they did cross, and God provided in a miraculous way, they cross the Red Sea, they get on the other side, and they're thirsty. So what happens? The people thirsted uh, there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock for, with thirst? What are they doing? They're questioning the motives of God, saying, Lord, your motives may not be so pure after all. And how quickly we do that when things go wrong. They had forgotten that God had just gotten them across the Red Sea. If they had just asked, God already had a plan in mind to give them water out of a rock of all places to show his power. And multiple times, you could skip ahead an entire book to Numbers, when they were hungry and thirsty. It says, and they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to, uh, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So when they were discouraged, how did they respond? Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt 
to die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. We loathe. They got to the point where they hated what God did provide because it wasn't what they wanted. And so we, we see this, this desire, this human tendency, really, to, to question God's motives. Honestly, I would love to just point fingers at them, but I have to think about myself. Do I ever fall into this? Now, I remember when, when uh, we were called to go to Costa Rica as missionaries, our family. And when we arrived, it was just pouring the rain. I mean, just pouring. If, uh, you would not be able to see that end of the, uh, of the auditorium from here. All right? And if you think you know what rain is in the United States, you don't know what rain is. All right? Costa Rica, that's rain. All right? And it was pouring. And so we, we got out of the airport. We went to a fast food restaurant which ended up putting Monica in the hospital, but that's a different story, right? Uh, and we went to a fast food restaurant. We ended up, we, we go home, and all of our stuff was there, which we were glad for, but all of our stuff was in boxes in a, in a house that was a lot smaller than we had imagined, where our living room, our dining room, our kids' playroom, my office, that was the same room. <laughs> and it was very small. And, and, uh, and the second day, the rain never stopped. The third day, the rain never stopped. The fourth day, the rain never stopped. And all it took was four days. And I remember thinking, Lord, why did you bring me here? Four days of having to put up with rain, living in, uh, in a country, well, given my wife was sick, and I'm, I'm helpless without her, right? Okay, but in fact, it was a riot when I tried to order. There you can do McDonald's for takeout. You know, and so I, I ordered takeout. It didn't work so well. Um, multiple people came and brought me food. <laughs> I had to pay for all of it. But, you know, when, when things are not going the way that we want, what do we do? We plan, Lord, are you sure? That, I don't know if the plan that you have for me was nearly as good as the plan I could have made up for myself. Right? I could have come up with something better than this. And then the fifth day comes. I wake up and I realize for the first time that from our house you could see the mountains. And they were beautiful. And I thought, how something so simple could turn my heart just shows how fragile I am as a human being. Anyone else there with me? Yeah. And, and I, I have to, I, yes, I can, I can see it in, in Joshua's life, but I see it in my own life too. That sometimes when things are not going well, I jump right into this temptation and I begin to question God's motives. We ought not go there. The third thing. We oftentimes fall into the temptation of going backwards. Let me explain that. Let's look at uh, the second half of verse 7. I'll read the whole verse just to catch the context again. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Of the Jordan. What was he doing? He was thinking of the glory days. When we think of the glory days, what do we think of? It's a terminology that we use, usually refer to sometime in our past when we think, oh, things were beautiful back in the glory days, right? For how, how many of you, the glory days were high school? Just out of curiosity. Our high school must have been rough for you guys. <laughs> this year we, we had our. 25th year uh, anniversary, or, anniversary or, or, uh, or high school reunion, and uh, 
you know, the 20, something. And I'll tell you, for most of the kids in my class, they look at those days. This was the glory days. The glory days. How many of you had their glory days in college? All right, Connor, who somehow has never even been to college. Now that's interesting, right? Yeah. No. But, you know, whatever the glory days are for you, you know, t- typically it's when we, we look at something in the past and say, because things are so bad right now, I wish I could just go back to those glory days. And we all have them, right? And th- this was the, the glory days for, for uh, Joshua because for him, he lost the battle. And so the glory days, which I find interestingly enough, were not two or three days before when they took down Jericho. The glory days were when they crossed the Jordan River. What were the glory days for him? When they were back in the desert on the eastern side of the Jordan River. I, think, I find that very interesting. I, and I had to ask myself, wait a minute, I'm thinking through, if you can't see the picture, it's a picture of them in the desert when they were hungry. Thinking, wait a minute, really? The desert? That was their glory days? Do they even remember what the desert was like? Because when they were in the desert, we just read. What were they saying? Uh, we read in Exodus 14, we read uh, uh, them saying, look at verse 11, uh, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? They were saying, wait a minute. When they were in the glory days, in those glory days, they were saying, these aren't the glory days because things are rough now. What are the glory days for them then? Egypt. Think about it, verse 12, the very next verse that we didn't read yet. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So here they are, they had one battle that was lost. They lost 36 men and they wished they were back in the glory days of the desert. But when they were in the glory, the glory days of the desert, they found out they weren't so glorious. So they went all the way back to slavery in Egypt. So, so wait a minute. So, wait, so Egypt was the glory days? Do you remember what Egypt was like? What was Egypt like? You know, uh, in, in uh, Numbers 14, 1 through 4, we find, uh, we find this. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people were wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt... If only we had died in, uh, in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Some of them were so serious about this that they were ready to, to make choices based on it. They were ready to go back to their glory days of Egypt. Think about that where they were slaves, where they were pressed so hard that many of them were dying from exhaustion. And then, then the Pharaoh said, I'm going to take away some of your supplies and make you do more. And so more of them would die. And he's saying, they're getting too populated. I'm going to have to work them to death. That was his plan. But they were still living. So he said, well, they're still getting too populated. I'm going to take away all their male children. Do you remember that? But this isn't what was going on in the mind of the Israelites when they were in, in in the wilderness, and then this isn't what was going on in Joshua's mind when he's saying, "Take me back to the wilderness." It's because we have this tendency to to want to go backwards. 
We, want this ten- we have this tendency to, to relive the glory days, but guess what? We have a very selective memory as human beings. And we, when we're faced with obstacles in the present, we forget how large the obstacles were in the past. We forget what God has gotten us through in the past. And I understand this mindset because I, I think I, I, I feel a little bit like Joshua. I'm a strategic kind of person, so, so to me, I, I see the dominoes, where if they're starting here, I see where it's going to go. I see where it's going to lead, and I think, wait a minute, uh, that, could get, that could get us into trouble. And that's what could get me to fall into the very next into the very next temptation. But before we move there, I just want to say, I think there's a lesson in this for us as we look at human nature, as we just look at how we are. It is human nature that when we're confronted by disappointing circumstances, we look backward, we look backwards, and we covet better days. But we tend to only remember the positive. Isn't that true? We covet those days and we forget it's those days that brought us to wherever we are anyway, right? And we, we look back at those days. I don't know what the glory days are for you. But be very careful to covet any time period, anything in your life where God has not led you to this day. Does that make sense? So Joshua lost one battle, and from, from uh, God's promise, he should have deducted that there was sin in the camp, but instead he got discouraged, and he started to question God's motives. And he wanted to go backwards in his journey. I think a red flag that we should have in our mind is whenever we catch ourselves saying or thinking these words, a little red flag should go off in our mind and realize, hey, we're about to fall into this trap. And that is, if only things were like, or were now, like they were back when, dot, dot, dot. You finish the sentence however you want to. When you catch yourself thinking that way, say, wait a minute, time out. God brought me to the present for a purpose. He has something in mind for me right now. You know, I, I remember the first time I went into college and I saw that there weren't just 12-page papers once a semester in one class, but there were 12-page papers, 10 and 12-page papers every week. Anyone remember that? First, how intimidating the first week of college was? I thought, wow, wait a minute, Lord, this is not great. This, is not, this doesn't look like so much fun. I mean, one of my professors had a, uh, an 80-page paper that we had to do. And much of it wasn't in English. We had to do it in Greek. And that was my freshman year, obviously. But and, and we, and we, it, becomes, it seems so difficult that we think, oh, what would it be like to be back in high school? <laughs> right? But God step, made us step it up a level. And college was good for me. Was it good for those who went to, went to college? It was good for us, right? We learned. We, we stepped up our abilities. That's what God's doing. He's taking, holding them to a whole new level of accountability that they've never experienced before. But it's hard. It's difficult. So don't go backwards. Go forwards. The next, the fourth temptation that we oftentimes fall into is to begin to think negatively. To think negatively. Let's look at verse 8. Really, I'll, I'll read verse 8 and the first half of verse 9 as well. O Lord, what shall I say when, the, when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Here we find negative thinking. What I mean by negative thinking is the assumption that everything that it can go wrong will. Have you heard of Murphy's Law, right? That if anything can go wrong, it will. 
or when you finally see the light at the end of the tunnel, you realize what? It's the light of the oncoming train. Right. Yeah. Some of you haven't heard that. Okay. So, yeah, it's this negative. It's this negative thing. It's assuming the worst. And, uh, and I, I get there sometimes, too, because, uh, you know, I, I do. I think I, I see one domino hit the next one, and I'm thinking about 15, 20, 30, 100 dominoes down the road. I'm thinking, these are all going to fall, right? Forgetting that all God has to do is walk up and take one of those dominoes out, and it stops the whole process. I forget those things. Why? Because I'm just focusing on cause and effect, and I see how that happens, and, and uh and I can begin to think negatively, and something happens, oh, this is going to cause that, and that's going to cause that, and this is going to cause that, and, and get worried about the future, thinking negatively. There's a, a quote, uh, and I don't, I don't know if you can see the picture, I, I guess you probably can't read the words from there, but this is one of those demotivational posters, it says, pessimism, it could always be worse, and it probably will be. <laughs> that's, that's negative thinking, isn't it? It's, well, it could be worse, and it probably will. <laughs> but sometimes, when things aren't going right, we begin to think like that, don't, don't we? Here's another one. Um, it says, pessimism. Every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. <laughs> Some truth to that. Here's one more. Pessimism. Anything that can go wrong and doesn't go wrong is just waiting for a much worse time to go wrong. All right. Oh, yes, this negative thinking. I cannot help but think of Eeyore, right? Remember Eeyore? Says, I never get my hopes up, so I never get let down. Or a better way of putting it is, I never get my hopes up, so I never get let down. Right? That's the way he always talked. But guess what? He was down the whole time because of it. Right? Don't be Eeyore. Don't, don't fall into that trap of thinking negatively every time something's going wrong because God usually has something better in mind. That brings us really to the fifth and the last temptation that we end, time, we end, uh, we end up falling into is to forget who's in control. Look at the last half of verse 9. It says, Then what will you do for your great name? It's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question means it's a question that's supposed to already have the answer obvious. The, the answer, the obvious answer is, you can do nothing about this. Lord, they're going to cut us off the face of the earth, and what are you going to do for your great name? Nothing, because your people will be gone. That's his argument. What's he doing? He's forgetting who's in control. He's forgetting he's forgetting that God can just take a domino out of that chain reaction and that stops everything. He's forgetting that God is in control. And so he says this as if God weren't in control. Remember, Joshua saw the plagues in Egypt. He saw the crossing of the Red Sea. He saw the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day for 40 years. He saw God's victory over Sihon and Og. He saw God open up the Jordan River and he saw God dis destroy, yank down the walls of Jericho, and now he wonders how God is going to protect his reputation without me. God's in control. And the moment that we think he's not is the moment we realize we have fallen for conceit or cowardice because we have left God out of the equation. Amen? Amen. That's how we can tell 
Now we talked a lot today about what Joshua did wrong. There is one thing that he did do right. Let's go back to verse 6 for just a moment. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. What did he do right? He went to the right place. He went to the Lord. And even though he went with the wrong attitude, he went to the right place. You know, when you think about it, there we, we see in recent history, really just even in the book of Joshua, we see three situations. We see the Jordan River, we saw the Jericho, and we now saw the story of Ai. And you put these three stories together, and we have to, to notice something different about Ai. First of all, the obvious difference was Jordan, the Jordan River a success or a failure? Yeah, it was a success, right? So I'll color that one green, if you can see that from here. Uh, how about Jericho? Was that a, a success or a failure? That was a success, okay? AI, was that a success or a failure? That was a failure, so I'll color that one red. So what was different about Jordan and Jericho that is different in the story of AI? Now, I don't know if you can still see those pictures very well, but what, what is this picture of right there? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Did the Ark of the Covenant play a key role in the Jordan River narrative? Yeah, remember how important it was that it went before them, right? And that the, the waters were held back based on the presence of the Ark. It's the central figure of the story. How about Jericho? In fact, if you look here, what, what do you find right there in the Jericho story? The Ark. Did the Ark play a key role in the Jericho narrative? It sure did. In fact, they had to go before it. The ark had to go around uh, one time each day for seven days and seven times the last day. And that's when the, the priest blew the trumpet. That's when God showed up and the armies of the Lord just tore down the walls of Jericho. What do we find in the AI narrative right about here? Do you see the ark in the AI narrative anywhere? No. Not at all. Just another representation of the fact that they missed the key figure of the two stories first stories. They crossed the Jordan River because of the presence of God. They defeated Jericho because of the presence of God. But AI, we can do it ourselves? Mm -mm. It doesn't work that way. And God says, I'm holding you to a whole new level of accountability. You have to understand this, this lesson. I am not going to give you victory until you get this right. That it has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God. You have to put him in it. You can't fall for cowardice. You can't fall for, uh, for conceit. You have to give God the credit where credit's due. Does that make sense? And we see that happen. And finally, in verse 6, we see Joshua face down before the ark of the Lord. And we see that happen. You know, it's when we, we, we come to the presence of the Lord, that's where all of those temptations that we were ready to fall into dissipate in the presence of the Lord. Because we put our focus off of ourselves and onto whom? to the Lord. In fact, there are, there are answers for every single one of these, if you think about it, just by being in the presence of the Lord. Um, for example, put your hope in God. If you're discouraged, where do you put your hope in God? What does Psalm 42 say? It says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why are you so uh, disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan. Do you ever get downcast? Sure. What are you supposed to do when you're downcast? Change where your hope is. 
Because if you're downcast, you put your hope in the wrong thing again. And we all fall into that. And we have to adjust that and say, oh, my, my soul is downcast, so now I need to put my hope in God, not in myself. We see that when we encounter God. Or maybe if you've been questioning God's motives, does God have an answer for that? Yeah, trust in God's goodness. What does Romans 8, 28 say? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Does it say that only good things will happen to us? No, it does not. It says all things. Are those good things or bad things? All things work together for good. Was the defeat of AI working together for the good of God's people? It sure was. It sure was. All things work together for good. Is God good? He sure is. Does he allow bad things in our life? He sure does. Does he allow them for, for our benefit? He sure does. And that's, what, it, that's what, uh, what we realize when we're in the presence of God. Or when we're tempted to go backward, what does God do? He, he tells us to look forward to our future. Think of uh, Jeremiah 29, written in worse times than this, in a sense. Jeremiah 29, 11, what does it say? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So the things that seem like they're harming us are actually for our benefit. They're good for us. We can have hope in that. But no matter what you're going through, it is for your benefit if you have an eternal perspective. Or maybe you're thinking negatively. Well, be hopeful. What does uh, Jeremiah 31, uh, uh, verse 16 and 17 say? Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from this land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. So even when they're carried off in captivity, the idea is there's still hope because God is using it for their benefit. And many times when we are tempted to forget that God is in control, we have to remember who is in control, and that it is God. Amen. Isaiah 45, 5 and 7 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light, and I create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Light, that's God. Darkness, that's God too. Prosperity, that's from God. Disaster, that's from God too. It's all from him. Who's in control? God's in control. We understand these things when we fall flat on our face before the Lord. And we've got to focus off of ourselves and on to him. What about you? I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, what circumstances get you discouraged? There might be some today that are here today discouraged because of some things going on in their life. It could be a, a health situation. It could be uh, something that's going on, maybe the spiritual condition of family members. Uh, whatever it might be, what circumstances are getting you discouraged? Number two, why do you think God has allowed these things into your life? 
I don't expect that we'll be able to find all of these answers right here and right now, but these are the questions we, that you need to, to ask. And really, you, you can begin that process this morning, but you, you will need to get alone, get where there are no distractions, get where you can talk with God, fall flat on your face and talk with God and say, Lord, show me why you've allowed these things. Uh, what are your glory days? And why is it dangerous to covet them? Think through that. What are your glory days? When, when you're tempted to think back, oh, I wish, I wish days were like the way, that, the way they were back when. Well, why is it dangerous to covet those days? Think about that. In what ways has your thinking become pessimistic?